Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. At the end of the Cold War, as communism collapsed, the liberal democracies of the West thought that that was pretty much it. Liberal democracy had won. It was the end of the age of ideological struggle. The end of history, in fact. Except, of course, it wasn't. United in diversity reads the European Union's hopeful motto. America's a pluribus unum, out of the many, one. But on both continents, democratic societies are fragmenting between Brexiteers and Europhiles, proud never-Trumpers and self-proclaimed deplorables. Identities shaped by race, by religion, by gender, education and by class. So this week we're asking, is there an alternative to the me-first drift of politics? I'm joined by Francis Fukuyama, who in 1989 coined the famous phrase, the end of history. He spent the last 30 years decoding what happened next. He's director of Stanford University's Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. And his many books include America at the Crossroads, Political Order and Political Decay, and now Identity, the demand for dignity and the politics of resentment. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. So let's get the big one out of the way first. What do you mean by identity politics? Identity is this idea that we have an inner self that's not adequately uh, recognized, that is not accorded the dignity that we feel uh, it deserves. And it's political because the recognition has to be public, by public authorities, by other actors in society. Uh, And uh, the way it's developed in the modern world, uh, it actually tends to focus on group characteristics like our ethnicity or our race or our gender uh, or our nationhood. And that's the way that politics has been drifting away from the 20th century model where the divisions tended to be more over economic policy issues. And why do we think that happened? A lot of people did think liberal democracy had won the argument. There were some nuances as the years went by after that euphoria. I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall. A few years later, it felt a bit more questioned. But this is a more seismic shift. What's happened? Well, there's a couple of things. So obviously, there's an economic component to it. I think a lot of people have recognized that globalization had very uh, divergent effects on the working class compared to people with good educations. The latter did well, uh, and the former really fell off a cliff. Uh, But there's also, I think, just a human psychological phenomenon that, you know, you want to be recognized as as a human being if you live in an authoritarian government, as the peoples of Eastern Europe did uh, during the Cold War. Once you're liberated from that, in a way, you take for granted the fact that you're living in a democracy, and then you want other things. You know, the EU bureaucracy begins to bother you, or immigrants, or other kinds of issues where you don't want recognition as a generic human being, you want recognition as a member of a particular group, and particularly if your group 
uh, feels that it's been marginalized or disregarded in some sense, I think that drives a lot of the passion in contemporary politics. Well, let me turn the question straight back to you. Tell me what your identity is. That's a, it's an interesting question. My grandfather immigrated to the United States in 1905 from Japan. Growing up, I never thought of myself actually as an Asian American or a Japanese American because, uh, you know, I felt that in America you didn't actually tie Americanness to a particular ethnic group. And so I just said, I'm an American. Uh, that began to change in American culture beginning in the 60s and 70s when ethnic consciousness became more trendy and people wanted to hold on to these particular ethnic uh, identities. And since then, it's really, I think, come to dominate in a way the, the way that Americans think about themselves. And the way you think about yourself? Well, no, no. So I, you know, I, I've never really felt that my particular ethnic background was relevant to you know, what I wanted to think about or, or do. Uh, and so I, to this day, I really don't think in those uh, categories. But identity politics do seem to correlate with strains on liberalism. To what extent do they arise from liberalism itself or perhaps from the gaps in liberalism when it comes to lived experience? People increasingly believe that the way they're born, that is to say these biological characteristics having to do with race, ethnicity, gender, gender orientation, should determine the way they think about politics. And they also want recognition not for themselves in this classical liberal sense of I'm an, uh, an individual human being, an autonomous human being. Rather, they want recognition of me as a member of a particular group. Uh, and this involves a big contradiction in a certain sense because sometimes the group identity really contradicts the individual identity. And that's, I think, the kind of problem we're wrestling with right now. I can see that that's functionally the case, but is there something inherently wrong, philosophically wrong, with identity politics? Why shouldn't minority groups want to be recognised as such? Why shouldn't I feel a certain kinship or even a certain grievance if it, I feel it to be true? Well, obviously, uh, people do have different lived experiences and, and particularly people that are victimised by you know, the larger society are going to feel uh, uh, that they've got this shared experience. So there's nothing wrong with that. I think that where it goes off the rails is when it sets itself up in opposition to any kind of more integrating identity, because you also need that. If you're living in a democracy, you have to have shared belief in the legitimacy of your institutions. You have to be able to uh, discuss and, and have dialogues with people and deliberate, you know, in common, because that's what a democracy is. It's not uniformity of thought, but it's a pluralistic framework in which you can work out differences, you know, through uh, institutions. And that means there has to be some focus on what you hold in common as well as what uh, separates you. Where do you see most starkly that that compact is becoming unstuck? Give me some examples, perhaps, from America today. I think you see this in... Uh, on college campuses, for example, where uh, assertions of, you know, gender or uh, ethnicity become so extreme that speakers, you know, that have a contrary view are not even allowed to uh, open their mouths on campus. They try to shut them down so it contradicts this basic uh, principle of free speech. I think that one of the most unfortunate aspects of the kind of left-wing identity politics that is, that's emerged is that it's triggered a kind of right-wing uh, identity politics, which 
I had honestly thought we had gotten beyond in the United States, uh, but you're now seeing people on the alt-right or you know, white nationalists that are now willing to assert that, in fact, white people have their own identity that is being victimized and marginalized just the way that other minority groups are. And that's really not a healthy situation for the country to be in. Of course, it's all being abetted by, you know, a president who seems to relish, you know, stoking that kind of division. And I think that's, you know, that's just very unhealthy for any democracy. I'd say like so many people I've interviewed from a smaller liberal perspective. I haven't yet heard a very good answer to what we're supposed to do about it and Mm -hmm. also perhaps to acknowledge some difficult frontiers here. Mm -hmm. That If on the one hand we're saying we need to be much more inclusive, much more diverse, we all need to sort of sing from a a single hymn sheet on that kind of issue or feminism's great, there's actually many attitudes that are not shared so widely Mm -hmm. outside the bubble of people who already like them. What are we going to do about that? Well, I think there's several um, solutions to this. One is that there needs to be a stress on national identity, a creedal, liberal national identity that hold people together in a modern liberal democracy. And we simply haven't given enough emphasis to, you know, to that kind of shared set of values. In the United States, it would revolve around constitutionalism, the rule of law, human equality, these basic founding principles on which American politics uh, is based. You know, in Europe, uh, in Germany, for example, in the early 2000s, this um, a German academic named Bassam Tibi put forward this idea of light culture, which in many respects I think is similar to what I mean by a creedal identity. It's, it's an identity that's based on enlightenment principles that is culturally open to people but also unites them around a set of democratic uh, values. And so there's different words that you can use in you know, different, uh, you know, national contexts, I think, to to describe the same thing. When we interviewed Amy Chua, uh, you may know Mm -hmm. Yale lawyer wrote Political Tribes. Mm -hmm. And one thing that she said then that struck me was this, Donald Trump won because he did a better job of portraying himself as part of the same cultural tribe as large swathes of America. But isn't that exactly a form of creedal nationalism, just of a type that a lot of people are... More allergic no, to. I don't think it's creedal at all. I mean, the problem with Trump's understanding of American identity is that it harkens back to this ethnic uh, uh, concept that that was uh, characteristic of the United States, you know, prior to the civil rights movement. Basically, America is a white, you know, Christian country. So the creedal one, really, I think, only uh, truly emerged in the wake of the uh, civil rights movement when national identity was divorced from race, uh, ethnicity, and religion. And that's not Donald Trump. Donald Trump actually wants to take us back into this earlier period when I think identity was associated, you know, in that ethnic fashion. He doesn't say this explicitly, but everything he's doing to encourage these people suggests that that's, you know, what his agenda is. Okay, but where does that then leave the idea of dual nationality, which you seem to see as a big problem? And I was a bit Mm -hmm. surprised by that. And if we look at the context of Europe, perhaps a lot of young Europeans would see dual nationality as, well, a polite way of saying it's a bit of a hedge, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on what happens in Europe, or they may feel that it expresses their own sort of creedal, loyalty Mm -hmm. to the EU or to something a bit bigger than their national boundaries. What's wrong with that? Well, if there were something like a true European citizenship, uh, I think that would be fine. 
Uh, I, the problem I have with dual nationality is that ultimately the interests of existing nations are really not aligned. I'll just give you one example. Uh, there's a lot of um, ethnic Turks in Germany that hold dual German and Turkish citizenship. Uh, and in the recent election, uh, the authoritarian president of Turkey basically told the citizens, the Turkish ethnic Turkish citizens of Germany, to vote in the election not in German interest but in the interest of Turkey. And I just think that that's not appropriate, that I think you really have to decide whether you're actually German or Turkish. And when you vote, you have to vote. You know, obviously people are going to favor the interests of their particular ethnic group, but I do think that you've got to establish a certain priority that if you actually have decided to become a German citizen, you know, you try to think of what's best for your country and not for, uh, you know, the second one. So I think that's really the, the issue at stake. And let's come up to date and have a look into the midterms and mm -hmm. how your thesis could perhaps apply if we looked at at least the preparations mm -hmm. for that and the races that are underway there. Now, where do we see more identity politics playing out? You could argue that it's, it's on the mm -hmm. Trump or Trumpish uh, right of American politics, the focus on immigration for, for one thing. But you could also see that the new Democrats mm -hmm. focusing, focusing quite a lot on identity politics and trying to find the right candidate, the right colour and the right gender for the right place. Mm -hmm. Are these two things going to drive more identity politics or do they cancel mm -hmm. each other out? No, they're going to drive more identity politics. The Democrats basically have this big strategic choice in front of them that they can try to double down on the existing identity groups. Uh, this is a an appealing strategy in terms of electoral mobilization because all of their activists live in these identity groups. So African-Americans, women, you know, Hispanics, so on and so forth. Uh, or they can try to uh, reclaim some of those white, especially the white working class voters that defected from their party to the Republicans over the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, and that's a big choice. You know, it's not one that they face this November because I think each candidate will be running in a local race and they'll, you know, they'll pick, they largely pick candidates that are appropriate to the, the politics of their particular region. It's going to be a bigger problem in 2020 when they actually have to agree on a single uh, standard bearer. And, and, and my personal opinion is they really have to figure out how to build bridges back to those white voters because I think it would be a very bad situation if the Republican Party increasingly becomes the party of white voters and the Democratic Party is the, vote, the party of all the minorities. Uh, I think that, you know, we're much better going back to a division based on economic policy divisions, you know, about what kind of social protections we want. Uh, cast in universal terms the way the Affordable Care Act was. I think that's really the my vision for what a you know a progressive politics in the United States really ought to look like. You start your book by acknowledging that you wrote it partly in response to the election of mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Do you think his presidency will turn out to be cathartic for America? Is something being changed that will be hard just to reset, even when he's gone from office? I think it's going to be hard simply to go back to what the situation was before his rise. I mean, he is the product of this very deep polarization that's emerged in American society. He's the product of it, but he's also been exacerbating it. So even if he personally leaves the scene, the polarization is still going to be there. The people that supported him are still going to be angry. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the American system has still got a big 
challenge ahead of it in trying to figure out how to reduce that, uh, you know, that degree of polarization. And do you worry then that the best days of liberal democracy may be behind it as reluctant as many people will be to think about that? Uh, You know, I think that the period immediately after the fall of the Berlin Wall was a kind of unique one. Uh, in which there was a big, you know, what Samuel Huntington called the third wave of democratization was in full swing. And that is not uh, likely to come back. But I don't, you know, I I really do think that in terms of sustainable political systems, liberal democracy is still pretty durable. Uh, You can see the consequences of authoritarian government in Hungary or in Turkey these days, because, you know, I don't think that you can be at the forefront of technology and prosperity under that kind of a crony, you know, authoritarian uh, system. So I do think that there's a kind of long-term durability in the in the liberal democracy that has evolved in Europe and, and, and North America over the years. We can't leave you without talking about the end of history. Uh, you're someone now, I guess, who goes around the world with people asking you what you make of, of that famous saying now. It must have changed uh, for you in your own mind and when you look around the world as it is today. What happened to the end of history? Well, um, obviously we're in a very different age. You know, in 1989, when I wrote the original article, we were approximately halfway through this third wave of democratization where the world went from having about 35 democracies to having like 120 uh, so there was a real, you know, shift towards uh, democratic government as a kind of default form of human, you know, government. But over the last 10 years, that's gone into reverse. There's been a democratic recession with the rise of Russia and China and then these populist movements. And so there's no question that the momentum has shifted, you know, towards something else. The question really is whether this is a full-scale depression that's going to lead the world towards an alternative form of government or whether this is more like a stock market correction. And I still think that there's a basic desire to live in a, you know, a truly modern liberal society that is still going to sustain, you know, that movement. But, you know, I will have to see. Francis Fukuyama, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And what do you think? Are identity politics always inherently divisive? Could creedal nationalism be an answer? Or how should democracies adapt? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. And do tune in via the live stream this weekend to participate in our Open Future Festival anywhere in the world. Just go to openfuturefestival.live and choose whether to tune in to London, New York or Hong Kong. See you there. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in New York, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.